Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia Frico, Senior Content Producer and Editor of the Booktopian blog, and I'm joined today by Kids and YA Category Manager, Sarah McDooling. Hi, Sarah. Hi. And our guest today is no stranger to the Booktopia podcast. Um, here to talk about his latest epic fantasy novel, Empire of the Vampire, is the one and only Jay Kristoff. Hi, Jay. Hello. How you doing? Good to see you all again. Oh. I, I should flag that though I am the Kids and YA category manager, I am certainly not here in that capacity because this is not a children's book. <laughs> no, I'm no. here as a Jay Kristoff fan. <laughs> sure. You, you can hang up your YA hat for the time yeah. being. I mean, not, not that there's yeah. anything wrong with young people reading challenging literature. I read Stephen King when I was 10, but yeah, you should know what this book is going into it. Yeah. Yes, something terrible happens to a child within the first few chapters, so. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. So yeah, Empire of the Vampire, you've tackled like murderous assassins, vengeful androids, all manner of aliens, um, and now vampires. So tell us, what can you tell us about Empire of the Vampire and what brought you to the story? I guess let's start with that. So it's a dark epic fantasy. Uh, I have described it as what would happen if Interview with the Vampire hooked up with the name of the wind in an S&M club while the first five seasons of Game of Thrones streamed consecutively in the background. So it, it's should kind really of, be on the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's set in a dark fantasy world. Uh, the sun no longer shines as brightly. There was a calamity 27 years ago called Day's Death. Um, and the sun doesn't shine as bright. We still have dawn and dusk, but the days aren't as bright as they used to be. And so along with the environmental catastrophe that comes along from something like that, in this world, vampires are real. They've figured out the sun no longer kills them. And so they've started popping up around this medieval empire doing what vampires do. Uh, the vampires entered a more traditional kind of horror style vampires, not the sparkly kind. So they don't chase teenage girls for any reason other than they see them as food just like everybody else in the world uh and the book is the life story of a guy named gabriel de leon who is we meet him when he's 35 he's in prison awaiting execution for his role in the murder of the vampire king uh, and he's charged with telling the story of his life and he really tells it in two parts one when he's a very young man he's 15 or 16 when he's recruited into a religious order of monster hunters called the Silver Order. And the second half of his story that he tells is when he's much older. Uh, he's 32, he's a very different man. He's kind of young and idealistic and full of fire when he's recruited. But when we meet him later, he's kind of old and bitter and jaded and faithless. Uh, and he's dragged almost against his will into a quest for the one thing that can perhaps solve this calamity of day's death, which is uh, yeah, a quest that he doesn't want to be a part of, and yeah, we learn why over the course of the book. Um, one thing I, I really loved about this book was the structure and how you have it sort of you've got this present day storytelling, uh, third person part, and then you're going to uh, Gabe telling the story in those two timelines, and you also have illustrations. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, they're beautiful, uh, they're done by. A lady named Bonnie Orthwick. Uh, she's weirdly enough, she's a Melbourne gal. I'd had no idea she was even Australian when I tapped her for the job, but just strangely, it turned out she lives right down the road from me. It was just a bizarre wow. coincidence. Yeah, she's literally down the road. It's so weird. 
How did you find um, her? She started out in the fan art community um, and she illustrations for Nevernight that are just beautiful. Like I've got, I don't know if you can see it in frame, but there's the first piece that she ever did for me was back in like 2017, I think, uh, is up on the wall of my study. She's just got an amazing style, a very unique style. You can kind of look at her stuff and immediately know it's her. She's like no one else out there. And it's also vaguely reminiscent of the illumination style in old medieval manuscripts. Um, I wanted to, I wanted it to have a vaguely stained glass illuminated manuscript kind of feel to it. Like when I was working on the book, uh, I lived for a month in Prague at the end of the dark dawn tour. Uh, I was over there for a book festival and I just stayed on for another month and worked on empire because Prague is a pretty gothy city to write a vampire novel. Um, and one of the places I went was, called Strahov Monastery. Uh, it's this old monastery up on the top of the hill. They had a bunch of illuminated many medieval manuscripts uh, kind of laid out in glass cases. So that sparked the idea that I might try and emulate that kind of style in the illustrations. And yeah, Bonnie has done amazing work. I've, I've only shown a little bit of the stuff that she's done on Instagram because the further into the book you get, the more spoilery those illustrations become. But yeah, she's she's just killed it. She's so good. Uh, I was definitely reminded of stained glass windows. They're yeah. so stunning. And I know you've released a bit of it in colour online. The book is yeah. black and white though, right? The book illustrations in the actual book are black and white, yeah. Um, unfortunately, we're not that rich. Maybe we'll do a special edition one day with colour illustrations. But, yeah, they're black and white for now. But, yeah, there's there are colour versions of some of them up on my Instagram feed if you want to bathe in the full glory. <laughs> Man. So yeah, so you've got that interview format as well, which um, on top of the flashback structure, I guess kind of speaks a lot to, as you said, interview with the vampire. Um, how did you know that this story would be told in this format? Like, when did you know that you wanted it to tell, to tell it in this way? It was, it was one of the starting thoughts. Like the first images I had of Gabe was in prison kind of the opening chapter of the book were the first visuals that I had come to mind. I'm, I'm a pretty visually minded writer. I tend to start in visual places. And yeah, I had an image of a guy in a prison cell looking out a window on an old medieval castle. Um, that was kind of the first visual thought. So yeah, that, that was always kind of ingrained in the story in my head. Um, but also it harkens back to like the, the big influences on this book are Interview with the Vampire. It's one of my favorite novels of all time. Um, Name of the Wind is another classic of the fantasy genre now. Uh, there's another song, uh, another book called Blood Song by Anthony Ryan, which has a similar structure. It's a guy in prison telling his life story. So they, they were kind of the three big literary influences in terms of structure, at least. Um, I went back and kind of read them all to study how the writers did what they did and what I wanted to emulate and what not. So, for example, Interview, the narrator and the chronicler kind of interact quite freely throughout the course of the book. Whereas in a book like Name of the Wind, the historian who's recording quote stories really only in his own chapters, he's not a constant presence in the book itself. Uh, and I wanted it to feel more like a free flowing conversation between two guys in a prison cell, almost like two guys down a pub. I wanted it to feel a little more organic instruction. So yeah, they're the three big influences. Um. You're known for being somewhat of a 
black-hearted individual <laughs> who is not afraid to just kill a bunch of characters. Sure. <laughs> so you can't, you firmly established that reputation. You just you just read this book last night, right? You read the whole thing in I one did. sitting. That's I did. That's brutal. I will know that to be. I did actually like read about fifty pages, and then went and worked, and then right. finished work, and then read the whole thing. Wow, you must read fast. It's a big book. It took like, like seven hundred pages in a night. Six or so six or seven hours. That's, that's um, like three and a half years of work <laughs> in the space of a day. Yeah, but Jay, it's not the last time I'm going to read it. Okay. I will be reading it. I know I'll be reading it. Although I, I mean, you have to read it with all the illustrations recovery. in place, right? You've only got the proof, so you haven't actually seen all the artwork yeah. yet. The artwork stopped about like a quarter of the way through the proof, and I was like, this is the best marketing strategy in the world, because now I have to go and buy, now you have to buy the actual yeah. book. Sure. A hundred percent will need to reread it with all of the illustrations. Yeah, they're um, beautiful. I will need to recover a bit because <laughs> the, the lead up to this question was, even though you've, you've definitely, you know what to expect when you pick up a J. Christophe book, I feel like this story really kind of pushed on to a new level of heartbreak and it, it's um, heavy. darkness. How was that like? you because I mean I've always got the sense you kind of gleefully go to those places was it, <laughs> was it as gleeful this time because I think it felt like a little bit heavier in a good no way. it wasn't it wasn't gleeful at all there was actually there's one chapter in the book which is it's the heaviest thing that I've written it's the darkest moment that I've ever written it's, it's a terrible thing that happens uh, and I was writing that scene right in the middle of the first lockdown in Melbourne so there was all this kind of global uncertainty and all my friends were worried they were going to lose their job. And there was all this, this kind of darkness in the world that I was living in and darkness in the world that I was writing. And so I, I wrote that chapter and I, I love the chapter. It's one of the best things I've ever written, but it's definitely the heaviest. And I, I slammed the laptop shut and pushed it away from me across the table and I didn't touch it or look at it for like four days. I would just kind of walk past it and pretend the machine wasn't there. It was that heavy. It's full on. I don't want to build that up too much because people will read and go, that's eh, no big deal. But it was tough to write in the context of where the world was at that point. Um, you know, and what well, the world has become. I'm pretty sure I know the part of the story that you're referencing. Yeah. And it's it's late in the book. It's it's called the worst day. Yeah, yeah. So the worst day is definitely. I mean, had I had time, I would have put the book down and I would have put the book in a timeout. I would have put the book in the freezer after that point. My editor um, said she cried for three days. So that's, that's a pretty good yeah. indication. It it was tough to read, and it's one of those ones where your emotions are so high when you're reading that part of the book. I mean, it's kind of going from a base of high as well because like you're. You've been on a Things that heightened emotional that state. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You reach that point and you're already kind of a mess. And that really, it's like you, when your emotions are running that strong, it's sort of hard. I could not read fast enough. Like, right. I was like, I had a few moments where I was like, okay, but what? <laughs> I, had <to> like, <laughs> I had to like stop for a minute and be like, okay, I can't actually like devour this book. I have to. I have, do actually have to read the words. I can't like osmosis it into my brain. Right, but it felt sure. like, yeah, it felt like it was almost 
downloading itself into my brain. And I mean, I, I do really like the dialogue in that chapter as well. Like, the, the, I think it's some of the coolest writing I've ever done, but I know what you mean. Like, you're building towards a moment and you want to get to the moment. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I totally understand what you mean. And you can't savour it because it's too horrific, right? So it's not like right. you're reading. I mean, you go back and read it again, I guess, with, <laughs> with the knowledge that it's going to happen. And that gives you a little bit of impartiality, I guess. But I, I tried not to. One of the things that people have said to me, it, it is a very dark book and it goes to very dark places. But a lot of people are quite surprised that there's this kind of thread of hope that runs through the narrative and it ends in a in a pretty weirdly bright place with a with a kind of bright resolution internally mm. and externally so I, I tried to keep that in mind the whole time like i didn't want it to be absolutely grim um so yeah i i, I tried to keep that that spirit of hope in mind at all times even when i was writing particularly tough things for me to write and difficult themes for me to explore I kind of knew where the book was going to end and it, and it ends in a pretty hopeful place. So hopefully it's not a, an entirely grim experience for everybody. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I am fresh off it. So my, so, so my emotions raw. are a bit like focused on all of the uh, terrible parts that made me cry a lot. <laughs> but actually, you know, as I said to you before the podcast, I cried the most in your book at a, a really gorgeous um hopeful, shining, golden moment in this book yeah. which really speaks to the heart of what the story is all about, which, treading rightly, is the idea that... <laughs> I don't want to say anything because there's a wonderful a line, line and I'm not going to say that line because I think every reader should come to that line in the course of the story. But it is about hope and about finding your way back to hope when perhaps you've been given a lot of reasons to lose it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, it is very much a book about a search for light in dark places, a search for faith in a world that encourages us not to have much, uh, either in the idea of a, a deity or, or a spiritual protector, but also in the people around you, you know? Um, so it, yeah, it, it is very much a search for redemption and belief in a world that discourages you to, to hold those things. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because, like, what I find, like, one of the most interesting things about this book is that approach to faith that you have and, like, how the power that it gives you is equivalent to the strength of your own, of what you give it, in a, in a way. Sure. There's, like, a very literal moment where, you know, someone's belief fails and it ends up, like, compromising the chances of survival, let's say. Sure. Um, but, like, in terms of, like, literal faith, there's... A really strong religious element running through the book not that the book like you know is super like, christian or whatever but the central religion at the core of it seems very heavily reminiscent of christianity like you've got the symbolism um, yeah. the ritual ritualism the monasticism a central martyr figure that prevalent idea of sacrifice um i'm really interested in your reasons for reworking these ideas into this book is it because vampire lore is so very tightly wound up in notions of like religion and particularly Christianity or is it just your way of exploring like bigger thematic ideas? It's both really. Um, yeah. I I was raised in a religious household. I was raised religious. I went to church every day, every Sunday, sorry, for uh, 17 years. 
So a lot of the questions at the heart of Gabe's worldview are questions that I've kind of asked myself my entire life. And a lot of his struggles with his faith reflect my own. But yeah, vampires are in many, in many works of fiction, they're inherently tied to the idea of, you know, evil and good uh, and the and the power of good over evil so that was something that i wanted to explore as well um you know some some vampire stories do away with that aspect of them very successfully uh i don't think it's a necessary part of the mythos but it was one that i wanted to explore given the other questions that i was kind of investigating over the course of the narrative they, they worked a little bit hand in hand in that sense so yeah there are moments where people lose their faith and it's to the detriment and moments where they find it again uh, to their benefit. So I, I don't want to come off like I'm you know, preaching any kind of ideology or uh, I, I don't necessarily want you to come to any conclusion, uh, but you know, maybe just prompt people to ask questions about what they believe and why. Mm. Which it certainly got me thinking about. Um, and also, just uh, tying into Liv's question about the, like, the Christianity feeling of the religion in yep. this book sort of um, matches the whole, like, world, which is very sort of French, like, I don't know, I'm bad at this, but French slash renaissance -y, uh Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of late, late Middle Ages, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it is, yeah, it is very much inspired by kind of Western European culture, so... Scots Gaelic, French, English. It's kind of a reimagining of those cultures in a in a fantastical context. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, so, some of the real world definitely bled into the mythology of this world, uh, and some of the religious structures in the faith of this world are reflected in in real world structures. You know, people could draw what conclusions they want from that. I'm I'm not intending as a particular critique of any one set of beliefs uh, more than notion of codified and orthodox belief in general. Mm. Um, and what you brought to vampire law, I found really interesting because you've created a whole like tiered system of types of types of vampire that there can be. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you came and the, the kind of powers they have in the bloodlines and how it all kind of comes together in this, I feel like, unique vampire law. Yeah, so the, the central idea of the world building is that vampires can't choose who they turn. Um, they have no control over it. So they bite someone, drink them to death, and sometimes that person just stays dead forever. Sorry, thanks for coming. Sometimes they reanimate 30 seconds later and they're young and beautiful forever. Uh, and sometimes they decompose for days at a time and then they turn. Uh, and so when they wake up, their, their bodies have started to atrophy and more importantly, their minds have kind of decomposed along with their bodies. So they're more animalistic and instinctual. They're kind of driven. They have all the vampires strength and speed and supernatural resilience, but they don't have human intelligence anymore. They're kind of animalistic. They're driven by the need to feed. Um, so yeah, there, there are kind of two castes, I guess, of vampires, the high bloods who are kind of the young and beautiful and Ricean vampires. And then there are, our bloods um, so they're the more animalistic ones uh, and when the sun worked like it usually would um, the animalistic ones would usually just die off the next day like they'd walk out into the sun they had no real brain to know that the sun would kill them so they would just die off but 
now that the sun doesn't kill vampires anymore, this kind of lower foul blood cast of vampires are just pop are just uh, experiencing a, a population boom, I guess. <laughs> and the more intelligent vampires have ways of manipulating them and using them as shock troops. So vampire armies are starting to spring up around this empire, whereas before vampires had to live in secret. They were creatures of the shadows because they're afraid of reprisal during the day. So you've had this this creature who has been forced to live in darkness and hide his existence for centuries, even though, you know, one-on-one they can snap any man to twigs, um, suddenly realize they can kind of act with impartiality. The one thing that was keeping them in check is no longer a factor. So they decide they want to rule the world as, as you would. Um, so yeah, that, that central premise is one that was in my very first novel um, that I wrote back in like 2008. It was the first book that I ever finished. It's terrible as most first novels tend to be. <laughs> Uh, it will never see the light of day, but that was that was the one kind of idea that I carried with me. So, oh. in a, in a way, the the idea for Empire has been in my head for like thirteen years, and this is a culmination of that. Wow! So a seed from the first thing you ever wrote. First novel I ever finished. Yeah. Yep. Wow. It was an ur- it was an urban fantasy. It's bad, <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a cool thought. I like I like the idea in the sense that it would create two kind of two kinds of vampires, but there's also an inherent tragedy in the fact that these creatures can't bring anyone with them. They're kind of stuck with who they find. You, if you like, if you fall in love with someone, you can't turn them and live with them forever. It's just like they'll a just die. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a, there's a cool inherent tragedy in the state of vampirism that I like in that law. Well, I guess cool. that makes sense for why they like, clump together and find their clans and their families, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends. You, you find out a little more about vampire politics and vampire families in book two. Like you really only get exposed to one family line in book one. Uh, and the character at the head of that line is a vampire named Fabian. He's kind of like an immortal Tywin Lannister. Like he's trying to build the dynasty, I guess. His family is the most important thing to him. Family is what endures. So he has... A brood of children underneath that that he holds very near and dear to him so um that that is one aspect of vampiric society but we, we get exposed to a few more bloodlines and families in book two so i'm having fun writing that now i'm really looking forward to that because i am very interested in the vampire politics and the different clans in case you couldn't tell <laughs> pivot back to this idea of family because i think it's something that you know, is very present in a lot of your work, if not everything you've ever written. Um, lots of your protagonists are often kind of blessed or burdened with notions of loyalty and duty to family. So you have Mia Corvair in, Night, in Nevernight, she's on a quest to avenge her father. Um, Anna from the Lifelike series felt bound to both her blood and her found families. Um, and now we have Gabriel trying to live up to his mother's idea of, um, his mother's legacy and that idea of, you know, being the lion of his birthright. Um, is that a conscious thing? Like, do, are you interested as a writer in this concept of family or is it just something that pops up organically? I think it's something, it's the kind of story that I'm drawn towards telling. Um, found family is one of my favorite tropes. And when I was building this book in my head, one of the inspirations for it was the Nevernight series. There's a Mia, who's the protagonist. She has a relationship with a mentor figure. His name is Mercurio. He's kind of this old crotchety, mentor guy who who pulled her out of the gutter and taught her how to kind of be an assassin and 
fight for herself. Um, I love their relationship. I love the idea that even though they're not bonded by blood, they're still as close to each other as father and child would be. But by the nature of the Nevenite books, their relationship kind of had to be set in stone before the story started. Like he's a, he's a constant background fixture for her. Um, so I wanted to explore the formation of that kind of relationship in empire. That was one of the genesis of the book. Like two people who have every reason in the world to dislike each other, who get thrown into this furnace together uh, and end up relying on it, on each other um, and thinking of each other as, as family. I, I just, I really like that dynamic. I like, I like found family as a concept and I, I like, the, the crotchety mentor and the plucky young protege trope. That's one of my favorite tropes in fantasy as well. It's like, you know, Luke and Obi-Wan or Rick and Morty. It's, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a cool structure that I like playing around with. It's a lot of fun to be had. It's done so well here. And it's done on levels as well, because we have old crotchety Gabriel yeah. um, mentoring, but we also see him young and we see young. his colors. Yeah. When he's yeah in the inverse yeah. role. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that was one of the fun parts of playing with that structure, kind of seeing him as a young idealistic guy, kind of finding his role in the world, uh, and dealing with older authority figures and the way their worldview impacts his own and then flipping the roles and putting him in the role of mentor and seeing how his worldview impacts the protege that he falls in with. Yeah. It, it was fun playing with those, those parallels, but it was it was really tough as well. Like this book is the hardest book that I've ever written. There was genuinely moments when I thought I, it was just broken and I couldn't fix it. Like that month in Prague, uh, I blew, I blew my deadline that month. It was, it was supposed to be done in November, 2019. And I had to have a difficult conversation with my editor because the book was just in pieces. It was, it was so broken at that point. And I genuinely thought that it was just too big and too much that I had bitten off more than I could chew. Cause it's, it's the biggest book I've ever written, but it's also structurally, it's just the most complex that I've ever written. Uh, it's not a book that I could have written five years ago. And I genuinely thought it was too much. It was, it's kind of like I've described it to friends as going up a weight grade at the gym. Like if, you, if you're doing, if you're doing your 20 kilo curls every day, you're doing your sets after a while, it just becomes second nature. And all of a sudden you put on five more kilos on the bar and it's like, you've never lifted a weight in your life. You just struggle town after two or three reps. That's what this book felt like. It was, I had leveled up in a video game or something and everything was just harder and heavier. Oh, it's so interesting to hear that because the final result is incredibly tightly written. And, yeah, I'm, I'm and super proud of it. I think it is by far the best thing that I've ever written. But you, you, can, you cannot see the agony behind the scenes. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you can't see how hard it was to write. But God, yeah, it nearly killed me. <laughs> it's, a, it's an epic saga. Um, yeah. And I think part of that is obviously that the, the scope of the storytelling, as we've mentioned, multiple timelines, the storytelling aspect, it's also just like grand scale epic yeah, it's, adventure. It's yeah. yeah, it's like it. It's really it's a big bombastic book. <laughs> um, and that wasn't a question. That was just me <laughs> saying how it was to read the book. It's like I don't. I'm. I'm just really amazed that you fit so much into one story. It is admittedly it's a long book. But it didn't feel long when I was reading yeah. it. 
there's there's a lot in there yeah and i mean the the original version of it was much longer i had to i had to cut it down quite savagely like i i wrote the young gabe storyline i wrote i wrote the young and old gabe storylines in parallel for a little while but then i started working exclusively on the young gabe storyline um and by the time i finished the first version of that it was 200,000 words just by itself like it was huge it was basically a book by itself and then i had to do the entire old game plotline on top of that if i had have gone with the original draft the book would be god half a million words long it'd just be untenable so i had to I'm impressed to hear that, but I'm also, I hate hearing it because I just want to read all the parts that you put up. <laughs> yeah. I really we, want to Weirdly know. enough, it, it actually made it better. It, it's a much, we were talking before the podcast began, there's a character in, in the book called Aaron uh, who starts as a kind of an antagonist for Gabe in his, in his school days. He's kind of like the Draco Malfoy of the book, I guess. Uh, and originally I intended him to be an antagonist throughout the series. Um, and in the process of cutting down that 200,000 word epic <laughs> into something more <laughs> digestible, I had to, I had to coalesce a couple of different plot lines into one, that being Aaron's plot line. So where Aaron ends up in empire, that fate was originally intended for an entirely different character. Mm-hmm. Um, but by dint of having to, to coalesce the story down into a tighter form, it actually turned Aaron into a 10 times cooler character than he would have otherwise been. Like he's, he's one of my faves, if not my fave character in the book, his journey is super fun to me because it was completely unexpected. Like where I thought he would end and where he actually ends are, are just day and night. And probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire book is a conversation that he and Gabe have right near the end of the book. Um, so yeah, that, that was just, uh, that was just a, a cool side effect of having to be more efficient in my writing and kind of distill this 200,000 words down to something that was more publishable. Aaron really so, yeah. benefited from that. He did. He, <laughs> yeah, he came Aaron up, he that. came up pretty good. <laughs> he is a great character. I had lots of favorites in this one. I think, I think, I don't know. I think obviously my favorite is Gabriel, but like if I'm going second favorite, it's a toss-up between Dior and Astrid. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you want to say about any of these characters or if we should just keep everything, just like it's, leave it there. It's a, it's, a, it's a hard book to talk about without very quickly getting into spoiler territory. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think the less said... The better. better. That's what I In feel as well. Ways. Yeah, Everyone I listening, think, there's a character called Astrid. I really like her. There's a character I like, I like called Dior, too. who I also like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like Astrid too. She's a fave. But yeah, I, I think, yeah, people enjoy it more the less they know in a strange way, which mm-hmm. makes it quite hard to talk, talk about the book on podcasts. But uh, yeah, you'll enjoy it more if you go into it a little bit oblivious. Truly. If you know everything's in store for you, you'd have to have like an amazing amount of courage to step into it. A bottle, bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just get loaded before you open it up. But no, there's just the fact that there were so many different elements that came together. Like at one point I was like, this is so big and so sprawling and so good, but I don't know how it's going to come together. And then it feels like at one point you just like pull the string or something and it all just slipped into place and they're like, oh, I know exactly where this is going, but I also don't. And it's just, it's, I guess that's what fantasy does. It's really 
it's one of the genres where you can be bombastic and loud and big and sprawling and messy on purpose by design. Um, I mean, and that, I guess that, it was, does have... that was kind of what writing the book was like as well. Um, mm. You know, there were, like I say, there were moments where I honestly didn't know how I was going to pull it off myself. And then you would come at a problem a slightly different way or you would tweak something just a tiny piece and all of a sudden it's like the world realigns and everything just slots into place. And you realise that the answer was there all along. Like the, the choices that you make in the end are so obvious, but they're only obvious with the benefit of hindsight. But they, they were the ones you were kind of meant to make all along. Like as Aaron is kind of a perfect example of that. Like it, it feels like I couldn't have told his story any other way once I told it that way, but it took, it took like months of agonizing and writing and rewriting and, and bashing my head against the wall before I found that one way through. But yeah, in, in hindsight, it feels like it was the only way I could have ever written the book, which is, it's a cool feeling like it, that, that uncertainty being followed by the realization that yeah, you, you finally found a way out uh, and you wrote the best thing that you've ever written and you did it in spite of those feelings of hopelessness and you know having bitten off too much uh yeah it, it, it's a book that i'm incredibly proud of at the end of the day oh you have every right to be um the other thing i really i know we're running out of time this will be the last question i ask i'm just like <laughs> so, um one thing i really love about this book and about fantasy in general but displayed in this book really well is how when you're going into a story like this you have a million and one really familiar tropes um and i loved the way you approached those and kind of kept sort of flipping them and kept saying oh if you think you know you know where where you stand you actually don't like the right. number of times gabe's like oh but wait who told you i was a hero like that kind of thing you kept sort of checking in with readers expectations throughout the whole book just to be like yeah oh, yeah, that was one of the fun parts of writing the book. I think, you know, because I've been reading fantasy all my life and, and writing it for kind of 10 years, I know enough about it to know how to build expectations and then dash expectations, I guess, you know, <laughs> to, to be subversive in the genre while still paying homage to the rules of the genre. Um, but yeah, I, I love setting up those moments where oh, you, you, you think you know the score, actually, you know nothing. Um, but I mean, that, that kind of plays back to the structure of the narrative as well. Like, it, this is just Gabriel's version of events. He's sitting there and telling you a story. There's, you know, what reason do you have to think that he's even telling you the truth? Uh, you know, how much has he revealed and how much has he held back? How much has he twisted? How much has he lied about? Um, that that's one of the fun parts of writing this kind of first voice, first person narrative structure uh, kind of harkens back to, you know, the usual suspects and television shows like true detective, like what are you actually being told? Uh, and what do you, what, what do you have to read between the lines? So yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a really fun structure to play with. And I, and I kind of mess with that a little bit in book two, book two has a second POV. So I was just going to ask, is there another POV coming in? Yeah, yeah. So in book two, there's another prisoner in the tower. Um, and so when you start to talk to that person, you realize that maybe Gabriel hasn't been entirely truthful about some of the some of the ways he's prevent, presented facts and the way he sees people like everything is, is colored by your own perspective and your own experience. Uh, 
Mm. So you bring someone else to that same situation. You know, even My if it's the same like, set of events, you, you can get a completely different version of it. <laughs> I said to you before that I need a year to recover from the emotions of this book. And that, um, so, you know, it's a good thing that there's that time for me to recover emotionally. I take it back. <laughs> I'm still writing book too, so you're going to be waiting a little while. <laughs> Well, it's not like you don't have other things coming in the meantime. You've got Aurora's End coming at the end of the year. In November, yeah. Yeah. So, And then are there any other projects in the works? Because I feel like you're always announcing stuff. At the moment, it's it's Aurora in November, uh, which is the Mm -hmm. third in the Aurora cycle. So that finishes off the trilogy. um, And we're super excited about it. it's it, yeah, it's a cool book. I can't wait for people to read it. It's probably my favorite of the three, which is actually a weird thing to say in a trilogy. Um, yeah, I, re- I really like I really like some of the places we we take the characters. It, it's fun uh, and it's smart and it, and it it feels like cool sci-fi. It's a mm. it's a homage to a lot of the properties that we, Amy and I kind of grew up reading, but we've again kind of put our own spin on things. So yeah, it's a really fun book. I think people are going to like it a lot. But yeah, other than that, I'm I'm working on Empire Two. That's kind of eating my whole life and brain at the moment. Uh, this is what I, happens I'm, when you write epics that are 800 pages long. It takes a while. <laughs> like the like Empire is 240, 250,000 words. So yeah, the, these things take a little bit longer to write. But there's fun to be had in in that scope. You can take the book and the characters' places that you just don't have room for in a, in a smaller novel. So while it's a little more onerous in terms of the time you have to spend it's it can be a lot more fun as well you can just go bigger you can shoot higher we can't wait no you have to (laughs) you're gonna have to sorry first one isn't even out yet (laughs) patience patience Anyway, we are, should probably wrap it up there, unless you have any other questions, Sarah. Because I know. No, no, no I'm, really... I'm really restraining myself, but, but we, <laughs> we have had the morning bell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jay, um, and telling us all about this amazing book, Empire of the Vampire. We love it. We think a lot of people are going to love it. Early readers are loving it, and you're so proud of it, and you have every right to be. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Uh, and signed copies are available through the Booktopia store, right? I signed a bunch of copies. At the time of this recording, they are. Yes, amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I then I can buy my Harry Panic about this later, but I think they <laughs> yeah. are still available at the time of recording this. All right, good. Um, but good. they are limited, so getting quick. Um, but yeah, so thank you for joining us, and thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, for joining us today. Uh, the Booktopia podcast is produced by Nick Vasiliev and you can grab yourself a copy of Empire of the Vampire from booktopia.com.au. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. 
Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au.